Wouldn't it be utterly ashamed if you couldn't sit down and enjoy a PB&J sandwich with a tall glass of fresh milk? How would you have survived childhood? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dean Metcalf. Dr. Metcalf is the Chief of the Laboratory of Allergic Diseases at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. He is past chairman of the American Board of Allergy and Immunology and past president of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Dr. Metcalf is the author of over 450 scientific publications on mast cell biology, food allergy, mastocytosis, and asthma. Today we are discussing, no pun intended, the nuts and bolts of milk and peanut allergy. Welcome, Dr. Metcalf. Thanks for being with us at the Clinician's Roundtable. My pleasure. Peanut allergy is a big one. You can't sit at a table with somebody eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They've taken peanuts off of the airplanes. Why is it such a big problem, and why is this allergen aerosolized? It is true that peanuts probably cause more deaths per year in the United States when people that are sensitive to peanuts are exposed to them in some way than any other food. So yeah, peanut sensitivity is a huge problem, particularly in children who are sensitive and then have to be protected, you know, away from the home in grade school and so on. And then they have to, of course, be very careful that they don't get peanuts hidden in something else or somebody doesn't decide somewhere to cook a bunch of peanuts in some food and then have the antigen get into the air and then breathe it in and then have a reaction. So it is a major problem for people that have the sensitivity. Speaking about the cooking of the peanuts, I understand that there's a difference in the way the peanut is actually prepared, roasting versus boiling or frying, in terms of its allergenicity. Yeah, allergenicity does vary with how the peanuts are prepared. And if they're roasted, there is some evidence that they actually become more allergenic. It really depends upon the individual person whether or not they're allergic to protein that is not roasted or is roasted and so on. And those kind of things really have to be worked out on a kind of exposure basis and reaction basis. Are there threshold levels in food allergy where somebody could eat a little bit? You know, we always joke that, you know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. I mean, this is a tough question because there's no doubt that some people can eat a half a peanut and anaphylax and other people have to eat a bag full of peanuts before they anaphylax. But the difficulty is using it in a predictive way to manage patients because the person who may need a bag of peanuts one day to anaphylax suddenly, maybe a month later, needs a peanut to anaphylax. And so you can't say to a person, well, you know, you had to eat a lot of this food, so you're okay if you eat just a little bit because there's this history that people with a sensitivity, you know, find themselves getting more and more sensitive. So... Once you identify somebody or somebody identifies themselves as allergic to peanuts or milk or something like that, for that matter, it just means rigorous avoidance. And, you know, maybe years later, you you might lose your sensitivity, but you should never tell anybody you're sensitive to peanuts, but it takes a lot. So if you think something has peanuts in it, take a bite. And if you don't have a reaction, eat it. Don't ever give that advice. What about using peanut-specific IgE, the level? as a predictor of either the severity of the reaction or safety of eating it. So you can actually get measurements from some laboratories that give you the relative level of antigen-specific IgE to peanut. The higher that is, the more likely somebody is to react to peanuts. Again, it's never 100%. It's just a kind of probability issue. 
it helps, I suppose, in counseling a little bit to say somebody you're, you're quite sensitive or not so sensitive, but in practicality, you're not going to use it to tell somebody to eat a few peanuts rather than a lot because eventually you know, you'll run across somebody that will react no matter what that level shows. Is it safe to do a skin test in somebody with suspected peanut allergy? Well, you know, it depends how, how severe that, that reaction was. I mean, if it's kind of suspected but it's not really a good association, yes, under conditions that the person knows how to treat a systemic reaction or anaphylaxis in the office practice or hospital or clinic where it's being done, okay. But let's say that somebody just had a profound reaction to peanuts and you just want to confirm it. You say, wow, this really looks bad then you really need to do an in vitro diagnostic test on blood rather than a skin test. Now, the peanut allergy, I would suspect that a double-blind placebo-controlled food challenge would be somewhat risky. But there are people who have a positive skin prick test to a food or a positive RAS test, eat the food without symptoms, and yet, as a practicing pediatrician, I still face with the parent who comes and says, I know he's allergic to that food. Can I tell him based on the testing that the child is or isn't, or do I need to proceed to another level of testing? If there's substantial question about it, look, if the reaction is fairly obvious and you confirm with a skin test, you don't have to go any farther. You can go to an allergist who's willing to do challenge testing and do it blinded so, you know, that takes away any possibility of a kind of psychological reaction to something. It's not done a lot, but it can be done in some circumstances. I mean, it's much more common to do it like the child's colicky, but no severe systemic reactions. And I need to know if a food's doing that, or maybe eczema, where it's not so clear and there's a role for food challenge there. I mean, adults, it's more used when somebody says, look, I'm just convinced that I get headaches and I get fatigued when I eat a certain food, and I think it's due to allergies, and there's no evidence of it. You might say to the person, look, I'm going to blind test you if there is no association that you think there is, I'd like you to accept that. So that's used sometimes like that. If you're just joining us, I'd like to welcome you to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Dean Metcalf, Chief of the Laboratory of Allergic Diseases at the NIH. Peanut oil, safe to use it or not? Well, generally it's safe if it's highly refined. The problem is it's sometimes difficult to know if it's highly refined or not. The more filtering goes on to making an oil and the higher it's heated and so on and distilled, the less possibility of taking over peanut antigen. So the reality of it is that most of the really the highly refined peanut oils are probably safe for people that are peanut sensitive. But you never can be 100% sure. And there are some oils like olive oil and things that are actually not as highly refined, so you have more taste associated with them. So if you're you know, allergic to olives or something, for example, you wouldn't be able to take olive oil. I think just on the safe side, if there's any way to avoid a peanut oil, if you have somebody in your family that's sensitive to peanuts, it's always the best course to take. Peanut butter is such a staple in our diet. What's new in the area of treatment? Is there any hope for the future? There are a lot of people working on trying to develop ways to, to induce tolerance or desensitize to peanuts. There are a lot of strategies being tested in experimental animals. Right now, we don't really have anything beyond avoidance or treating inadvertent exposure and just very good practice that includes things like you know, reading labels and knowing where things are hidden. Uh, there has been some talk about the use of this humanized anti-IgE, which is used for asthma, allergic asthma, and things like that. 
could be applied to the treatment of food allergy. The problem is that the studies have shown that while in some patients the administration of this humanized anti-IgE called omalizumab may actually lower sensitivity in that the person can eat a little bit more of the food they're sensitive to and therefore get a safety factor. It's not consistent in all people. So it's not, uh, at least as currently understood, a reasonable treatment to try to take care of somebody with a food allergy, particularly if it's severe. I suppose there might be some specific circumstances in which a physician and a specific patient and understanding exactly what was going on might want to consider it. But generally today, we do not recommend, on the basis of what we know about it, that omalizumab be administered to increase the amount of food that a person can eat before a reaction. It's just not constant enough to be a safe recommendation. Immunotherapy works for many allergic disorders. Is there any approach being looked at for food allergies, such as sublingual immunotherapy? The standard way, at least to treat inhalant allergies like ragweed and stuff like that, involves sometimes use of what people refer to as allergy shots or to try to decrease the sensitivity. That particular treatment has not been approved to treat food allergies. It's not known really if it works. But there is a lot of interest in sublingual immunotherapy as an alternative traditional shot-based immunotherapy in which small amounts of extract of the foods or purified proteins from the foods that are known to be the allergic proteins are administered by drops into the mouth in an attempt to induce tolerance. And in Europe in particular, there is a belief in many of the countries that this works and, in fact, is used therapeutically. In the United States, the trials are still going on really to look hard at whether or not it, this really works and how safe it is and how long it lasts. So there's a lot of work to be done, I think, before this will become a procedure in practice, in common practice in the United States. But it's an interesting thing to watch. What about ways of early introducing a food, such as they're doing with peanuts in Israel, trying to switch from a Th1 to a Th2 type of response? It's interesting because, you know, one theory has it that you tolerate foods, you know, and you don't make a bad immune response because you become tolerized to the foods. And often that happens early in life. And there is some evidence in cultures, for example, where peanuts are more commonly administered to children and infants, that there's actually fewer children sensitive to peanuts. So that's led to some interest in trying to introduce some of these proteins early in life to see if it will tolerize the children to that protein. We don't have an answer yet. In fact, most of our strategies deal with avoidance of things that are strongly allergenic currently as recommendations are given in trying to keep infants and children from developing allergies. But it is an interesting idea, one that has a basis in animal models, and we're going to have to wait to see if we have to change our ideas about some of these concepts. I have to admit, I read this on the website for the Laboratory of Allergy at the NIH, Chinese herbs and a mouse model for reducing peanut allergy. Where's that now? And Yeah, those are both being done by Dr. Hugh Sampson's group at Mount Sinai in New York. And they have some evidence that a traditional Chinese remedy for allergies may have some validity. And they are working to develop new ways 
to treat food allergies that have had some success in mouse models. Some of these are in human trials, but there's nothing yet that is in common practice or close to being placed in common practice as a true food allergy treatment in that it would reduce sensitivity to a given food. I mean, we're still like we were 20, 30 years ago saying, you know, identify a food to which someone is allergic, take it out of their diet. If they eat it by mistake, then they have to be prepared to treat the severe reaction with with epinephrine, which is the first treatment of choice in a systemic reaction to a food. Dr. Metcalf, I'd really like to thank you so much for giving us your time and being our guest here at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health.